Where Kindness Lives is designed to cultivate a kinder world by helping to inform and inspire. Hosted by Jenny Sager from Nextdoor, the neighborhood network connecting you to what truly matters so you can belong. We'll chat to the most thought-provoking individuals paving the way for positive change and hear from neighbors who deliver small acts of kindness every day. So come on a journey to where kindness lives. Hi, I'm Jenny Sager. Thank you so much to everyone who's enjoyed our podcast so far. Where Kindness Lives is now in the top 10% of podcasts globally, which really proves that kindness is indeed contagious. Oh, so excited about that. My guest today knows a thing or two about success. He took women's fashion label Ashley Stewart from the brink of liquidation to a billion-dollar success story, and he saved a 1,000 jobs along the way. Business leader and former school teacher James Ree has a simple lesson to teach, and it starts with kindness, something he experienced firsthand as a five-year-old after receiving a red helicopter toy. James, I'm so excited to speak with you today. We start our podcast by asking, what does kindness mean to you? Kindness for me is best embodied by my, um, by my mother and her relationship with the world. It takes great courage. It is the hallmark of great leadership. It's when you do things and you think about things in a way that brings out the best in someone else without asking for or demanding reciprocity or any sort of reward. Um, It's not weak. It's relentless. And it uh, holds people accountable to their best self. Who is someone in your life that you feel exemplifies kindness? Somebody that has really stood out over the years as showing kindness to you? It is my mom, but as I've gone through my life, it tends to over-index. I've seen kindness from the women that I served at Ashley Stewart. It's my wife. Um, Not that men cannot be kind. I think a lot of men want to be kind, but there are a lot of social mores for some reason that tell them that that's weakness. But in my life, it's been more women that uh, it's uh, particularly my mom that They just did things that they set up the theater or the art or the system for others to be their best selves. And my mother was like that. My mother had a difficult life in the United States. She immigrated from Korea. Um, She was stuck in the house for way too long. And she, um, I don't know, she pushed us to be um, like good citizens of our country, good citizens of our family. And she never asked for anything. And it was my mom. That's amazing. And I think you also I touched on something about men and, and kindness that I want to talk a little bit about later as well. And it's interesting because that the person that I'd say put you on this journey actually was a dad, right? And, and showed you a bit of kindness. So can you share what happened if we rewind all the way back to 1976 and what happened at school that really opened your eyes to kindness? Yeah, I was uh, in kindergarten with a bowl cut, and um, uh, I was, you know, just the only Asian kid, actually, too, in, in a public school on Long Island. And I, my mom, we didn't have a lot of extra funds running around the rehousehold household um, in 1976, but my, my sandwich and my lunch was always perfect. So my mom would wake up early and make me a perfect sandwich. There would always be like an extra like slice of bologna on the sandwich. And I came home from school one day with a toy red helicopter that um, my parents knew wasn't mine. And they sort of, there's a lot of confusion. First, they thought I took it from school and 
the next they thought that they had messed up because they didn't know that in America you're supposed to exchange gifts with five-year-old kindergartners. And, and I explained to them that I was the only one who got it and that there was a father with three older siblings who came in to give me this toy red helicopter and I couldn't understand why I had received it. I was just happy that I had a toy. And then they found out later that I got the toy because um, I had been sharing my lunch with my friend who often came to school without lunch because, as it turns out, his mother had passed away that summer. And the father was bereft. I mean, just he was a dad. We didn't live in an affluent neighborhood. And there was he had four kids under the age of 12. And my friend didn't have food. And so I just did it. And I didn't expect the reward. So in some ways, you know, you know, I thought I was going to get in trouble for sharing food when we didn't have a lot either. And so that was what happened. And like, I never forgot it. Like, it's been this sort of a meme or like Brad Pitt would say, like a memento, like in my head. And it's the best gift I've ever received, like in my life, because it was just done so graciously. He didn't make it cheap. He just kind of stroked my head. I remember him just kind of stroking my head and not telling me why I got it. And he, like, the real hero of the story is my friend's father, like, just taking the time to do that, like, coming in and just wanting to sort of do that for a kid. It taught a kid a lifelong lesson. It's really reminded me, it's been a North Star for me. It's been a, just, I never not want to be that person because it's so obvious it's the right thing to do. And then you get old and people, you confuse, um, knowledge for wisdom and people tell you're supposed to learn all these fancy things and you're supposed to be smart and like kindness is stupid and being generous is stupid and for the life of me i just i i I have tried to not live like that and as you know it's not easy to live like that but for for some reason we seem hell-bent on being cruel and but i i think things like this this podcast and what you all are doing next door we're just trying to remind people that you do need each other and did you feel that impact immediately. So even because you were quite young then, you, as you said, you were about five years old. And did you, is that something that straight away influenced you? Or was it when you were in you know, high school or even your 20s or older that you went, my gosh, that was a big thing for him to do? It keeps crescendoing in my life. I think like most good things, it compounds. So there are very few things like this is me being dorky, but like in systems dynamics, in there are very few things in nature that don't are not a closed loop. It's like a perfect equilibrium. But there are a few things where you have open feedback loops that compound forever. So unfortunately, one of them is money, which is one of the reasons why um, wealth unchecked compounds unnaturally forever, right? You can never stop it from compounding. But my belief is that kindness and love also compound forever. These are open loops. It's not equilibrium. And so every year I get older, every year that I'm a, more of a father of my three children, like I recognize the graciousness of my friend's father, like that, just that little thing. And it's led to a lot of things in my life, that one gesture from him, it's allowed me to have the courage to do some things in my life to benefit other people. Like the ripple effects are continuing to be felt, including being on this, you know, chat with you. Yeah, and it's amazing when you have those kind of life-changing moments, I think. And you you touched on this a little bit, but I know that you spoke about when you were younger, you didn't really relish material things. So you didn't grow up in a household that had 
a lot of luxuries. And instead you are taught really to nurture relationships and truth and, and an education. And how did that influence who you are today? And I guess, how would you help people instill that in their own household? I always emphasize the, the second definition in words. Like I think like, you know, words matter a lot. Definitions matter. So I, I don't take shortcuts with words. So capital. Like I teach my kids that capital is not just, it's not financial capital. There's a lot of other capitals, right? And I, I talk about words um, like kindness and generosity and say, why is it that you think it's great to raise kids this way, but then you're not allowed to say those words once you're 18 or 22 and you go into the workforce? As much as I've tried to live a life that's holistically uh, the same in every universe that I'm in, every country, every work, life, I just don't have the brain capacity to code shift. For some reason, like all the rules of play in your neighborhood or your personal life, the way you try to raise your kids, those rules are suspended when you go to work. And I think right now what we're feeling in the world is like people don't want to play like that. People, I think, are embarrassed about some of their behavior at work because they're doing that work from home now. And they're realizing the cognitive dissonance of like them having two different value systems. And I think the world will be better for this. Absolutely. And I think the workplace and the neighborhood can fall into the same realm sometimes where you some, for some reason, people put their guard up. So you're really kind, you're really nice to the people you know, right? But then you turn up and you, there's people you don't know, or you go into a work meeting and you're maybe even pitching to a client and then you're a different person, right? And so how do you, and you've managed to do this really well, but how do you make that holistic? Like how, and I think this is something we try to do at Nextdoor where we connect people based on proximity. So they don't know each other and they may have a different opinion, but they can, we try to teach them that could be mutually respectful. Yeah, look, for me, it comes from, (laughs) I don't, take myself particularly seriously, but I take other people very seriously. I think more spiritually, I have grown to be realize how truly insignificant I am. Like my life is insignificant. It really is. Like in the grand scheme of life, the earth, the human species, it's, um, I've surrendered. And it's enabled me to just be, to connect with people on a really, like, I've, I've never felt as young as, I'm 51 now, I feel like I was when I was 10. And it's, it, it's very liberating. Like I have a lot of courage. It is not from uh, like uh, destructive, hyper-confident like courage. It's more a courage from like when you realize you're so small and you fall down and it doesn't hurt. Remember when you're riding a kid as a bike? And it's enabled me to sort of do things that I have no fear I just go in and meet people as they are. I'm guessing that really came out um, during your time at Ashley Stewart as well, because, and I I love what you said about walking in there and just saying, you know, my name's James. I don't have retail experience. I'm not black. I'm not a woman. I don't have a lot of black friends. And you were kind of just walking in and owning, I don't want to say how unqualified you were for that role, but in some ways that you weren't, you definitely probably weren't what they were expecting. Right. And so 
What was that moment like for you? And I'd love for you to talk about how you really gained the respect of the women and everyone and the customers as well. Yeah. So for your listeners, just so you know, you're obviously what you can't see is that I've got this Asian face. I'm a dude. And my whole professional background is private equity. And I was in very tall buildings, managing billions of dollars of money, doing things like wielding money. And I had a certain life that was sort of um, related to that, right? Just uh, living outside Boston and that type of those social circles. And I was 42. And like this is you're talking about the year 2013. And I had it was kind of a not a, it may be a bit of a midlife, actually. And I, by the way, I talk to a lot of women. I work very close with a lot of women. I think my, I've noticed a pattern. A lot of women ages 35 to 44 is who I'm talking to a lot right now. I think guys hit their midlife generally much later or some never at all. They never really realize that their life is that they're mortal and that they are going to have regrets. I find women around that age. Um, so I, I hit that. I'm my mom's son. So my dad was dying. As you said, I had no right to think that I could be the CEO of a fashion brand for black women, but no one else showed up. And I showed up and I said, I'm here. And I don't talk a lot. I'm here. I'm away from my family. Actions like in kindness, words are cheap. And you do. And you do it every day. You do it consistently. And I showed up and I showed up every day. And they said, you're still coming. And I said, I'm here 20 hours a day. And I wanted to do it because I believed in these ladies. I believed that I, I really admired what they were doing under very difficult conditions in the neighborhoods across America. They were true leaders because they were kind. Like how they were interacting with their customers and women visiting their customers, like in hospitals, if the customer didn't have any family, just saw it. And they were great leaders because they weren't asking for any recognition. And so I think what a good friend does, when you see people doing that, just like my friend's dad did for me, I think our job is to tell those stories and to really amplify and show people without cheaping it how gracious and wonderful what you're seeing is, the relationship between parties A and B. That was my job. I set the whole business model up so that I was party C, I wanted the world to see what I saw between these two women. I think in doing so, I think what, why we're talking on the phone now, why I did the TED, what's happening, people realize, oh my gosh, you were where we are today 10 years ago. You changed your life. Different, quote, work-life balance, different value systems. Um, we hit on a lot of thorny things like gender and race and what is a leader and What's the purpose of a business? And when you think about all this, you realize that all of the organizational and quantitative aspects of work have to change because kindness needs a slightly different form of accounting. Kindness needs a different, slightly different form of math. And what I try to tell people at all of these places is that you know this already. You just forgot. You knew it when you were young. And now you think you're older and smarter and you have all these degrees and I think as we as adults, I think that's what a midlife crisis is. You realize maybe I was much smarter and wiser when I was <laughs> 10. You know, whether you're an owner of a cafe and you're looking at your balance sheet every day, or you're somebody who's the CEO of a 
major corporation, when you've got that P&L kind of weighing over your head, how do you prioritize kindness? I think you have to prioritize kindness. Like my view is that um, this is the way I think and I act. It's just, um, I think it's a great privilege to be as a CEO, to be in charge of an ecosystem that creates a place of being for a lot of human beings. They happen to be in your neighborhood called work. And I, 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 I just treat it differently. I'm like, if I'm in charge with have, creating an environment where they feel safe, like they should keep learning. And so my employees at Ashley Stewart and also at other places in my private equity life, it wasn't just there. People always said, you know, we could tell you were a former high school teacher. Like, it feels like we're coming to work to learn and we're getting paid. And so I said, it's exactly what I'm doing. And if you think about it from a macro perspective, I think the future of work and where we are with higher ed, and people are going to have to learn at work. I think we're heading much more towards sort of uh, a modified apprenticeship, just where people can't afford to invest the amount of money that they're spending in private education. So why not go to work and keep learning? How do you think about that with your own children? Like, how do you talk to them about this, about kindness and their own career paths and, and where, where they may end up? You know, my, my second child, uh, she wrote me a note for my birthday and she just said, you know, I'm, I'm happy birthday. I'm proud of you, but I'm really proud to be your daughter. I said, oh, they knew step by step all the decisions I was making. Like this, what I did with Ashley Stewart um, was a family decision and they were very supportive of it. Um, I come from a world, a line of caregivers. My mom was a nurse who uh, went back after raising kids. She went to a a veteran's home to take care of the dying soldiers who died um, in the Korean, who served in the Korean War when she was a little girl. My dad was a pediatrician. My parents um, raised us this way that it wasn't how, if you won, it was how you won. It was how you played the game. It wasn't, did you play the game? It was how did you play the game? And for a long time, it was a burden for me, actually, because I'm like, other people don't play that way. They just want to win at all costs. Yeah. And then yeah. I just... Which is exactly what I was thinking when you said that, because I love that. But then it's hard to be that the one person in a sea of thousands that aren't thinking that way, isn't it? It is. And sometimes I was annoyed that it was a burden, particularly like in my 30s. I'm like, no one else is playing this way. (laughs) And I just said, well, I'm playing my game. One of the things that you talk about as well is about the importance of slowing down, which I think relates to this and how everything is so fast paced in the world now. You know, if you think about all the technology and even things like Twitter and, and Instagram and why is that slowing down important, do you think? Well, I think our brain, one, our brain function works that way, right? We are already being lied to a lot by um, a lot of shortcuts within our brain. Um, I don't trust a lot what I see. I trust a lot what I smell and taste. I've been really much more relying on my intuition these days because it's, I think increasingly we're going to have a harder time um, deciphering like things that we think are fact and deduction they're not because these are orchestrated images and orchestrated. I don't believe a lot of the things I'm seeing. So I have to really slow down and sort of go back to a deeper place. 
But two, it's like, I, I also, have, getting back to the vocabulary, I'm tired of using words like winning, disrupting, destroying, I beat you, I took your market share. I just think it's real scarcity mindset language. And how do you change that though? Like, how do you encourage, how do you get people to stop using those terms, for example? Well, I mean, part of this is doing things like this and doing my TED talk and like just talking about it. It's teaching at MIT and Howard. I've been teaching a lot of different universities and um, high schools and business schools and uh, working with accrediting organizations of uh, business schools and also the independent school network here in the U.S. about how do we teach finance or teach accounting. Like, I'll give you an example. And when I when I teach women about like future value calculations and like the, I always make them calculate what the future value of the pink tax is. I don't just talk about the formula and saying here, this is how you use to make money. I put finance and I put it in social justice terms and say, calculate how much extra money now you need in your retirement account because of all the social mores and all the ridiculous pricing that's taxing you. And you're going to realize that you're not asking for the correct thing. You're asking for like compensation parity. But based on what I see, you should be asking for like 1.2, 1.3 times what the men make. And so every time they think about future value calculations, they learned it by learning about justice. We don't teach it that way. And that's what I'm doing right now is saying, and that's what all of Ashley Stewart was. The entire math, the entire finance theory, I went to solve a social problem. I think it's the same when we talk about with Nextdoor using tech for good and having that social responsibility and, and thinking about the social capital. And I think one of my favorite things about my role is being able to see those pockets of kindness pop up in neighborhoods all over the world and really seeing those beautiful stories and just looking at how we're reconnecting people and combating the loneliness and social isolation that's happening at a neighborhood level all over the world, which I think is, is really great to see. I call it vitamin S. You know, you've got to get that, that social dose every day. And for an introvert like yourself, is that, is that hard to do? I think I've walked around much like, I, I must look like I'm um, lost because people always reach, <laughs> like, they must think I'm like a little space cadet because people have been very, Gracious. I mean, I used to write for like, let's go Austria. Picture me hitchhiking in the Alps in 1993 <laughs> with this face in the Alps. And, you know, like the Austrians, like they would sort of slow their car down. Like, who's this? And your German's really good. And, you know, they invited me back to have Speck and, and Schnapps. And it was just like that when I was running Ashley Stewart. I mean, um, you know, a black neighborhood in Southside Chicago, and like people could tell that I was a little bit out of place, and they helped me. They said, "Hey, how like I, I've had that experience a lot, like much more than negative experiences. Except we like to just harp on the negative experiences. I've seen much more kindness and much more neighborly behavior. Um, it just doesn't get amplified. So that's why you guys are doing this, right? You're sort of amplifying these things, and like." And I hope that you guys are very successful. It's easier to get good ratings, as we all know, by having incendiary negative events. So 
one thing we always do in this podcast is we share a story from a next door neighbor somewhere around the world. And this is one from California. And speaking of men in the neighborhood, this is Jorge's story. So um, his neighbor wrote in to us and actually said, my super amazing neighbor saved our other neighbor's life. Her house was burning and she had no idea. He broke the front door to pull her out of her room in which she was resting and was unaware of the dangerous situation she was in. If it wasn't for his quick actions, things could have been fatal. So Jorge actually was is a police officer, and he's been a police officer for over 26 years, but he was off duty visiting his in-laws when his wife saw smoke coming out of a house a few doors down. He saw that there was a car parked in the driveway, and he went over to the house and, and broke in and actually saved this neighbor's life. And what he said is, For me, it's just a normal thing. Working or not working, regardless of where I am or who is involved, I'm ready to take action. I'm not a firefighter, but I had to do something. And I think um, that kind of really sums up the community feeling that we were talking about. And he was actually nominated for a Red Cross commendation by his neighbors. I mean, he's a hero. And I think we we all don't have to do something of that grandiose of a nature, right? It's just, it it really is going back to acts of kindness. They're so, I think they're very modest. When you ask me to define what kindness is, I think it's really modest, but you add, it adds up. I mean, it's, it's really, it's not a one and done. It's, it's, it has to be consistent, relentless acts. It's, it's a lot of little small things, which is why we all cry in the Pixar movies. Well, and I think the small things can have the bigger impact sometimes, like just, you know, bringing in your neighbor's mail or just, you know, mowing your neighbor's lawn without them asking. And those those little things actually make a really big difference. So I completely agree with you. What I miss most about my mom, it's not the big things. It's she did a lot of very small things. These are very small gestures. It's a hand on your side of your head like when you know someone is not, when they're stressed, it was when she would pick me up from something and driving me to practice, there would be like a little, she would buy a McDonald's cheeseburger on the way and have it sitting on my front seat. It was like, even when as a grown up, she was always worried. She didn't know what private equity was. So she was always worried. I don't know what that is. So I would always go home and I would find a $20 bill in my coat pocket these really small gestures that you only do if it's if these are acts of kindness slash love right it's just these little things and that's what i miss most about my mom and i think that's what people are missing as in leadership now like we have spent 30 years celebrating leaders who do the exact opposite big things grandiose things and that's not what leadership is it's why my mom is the was a quintessential leader. I think that's why the ladies that, that actually were leaders every day in, day out. And I'm glad that you guys are really showcasing these type of people. Like it's just um, to do it every day. Um, we're going to have a bit of fun. We do always do this at the end of the podcast. We call this our kind carousel, some rapid fire questions for you. Um, you mentioned before that you love to curl up with a book or listen to some music, favorite band, favorite book. Favorite favorite singer is Springsteen. Everyone thinks he's born like um, born in the USA. Bruce, that was like his least favorite album. Like he, Bruce is an artist. I mean, Bruce is a <laughs> absolutely. He was looking for kindness. He just happened to do it yeah. on a bike, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, favorite book is my dad's um, gift to me when I was six or seven years old is a beat up copy of Aesop's Fables. Okay, so you you have said that your best investment decision ever was finding your wife. Yes. What would what would she say about James at home? I think my wife Meg, uh, I she would say he's very well intended, has a big heart, but like most women would say, he's not quite fifty fifty on the uh, chores list at home. That that she wishes that I would really learn how to appreciate the science of cooking and that I would really enjoy it. <laughs> like if I really looked at it that way. And then, you know, she would like, I think that in our relationship, my wife is in Alzheimer's research. She's, um, she really is a like science oriented person, science that I bring. Um, yeah. Like I'm like a big teddy bear, actually. Like I'm like a golden, I think I'm like a golden retriever. That's sort of my personality. Oh. I'm like a dog. Who doesn't love a golden retriever? I kind of, that's kind of my personality. Before we go, where can people find you? Where do where can the listeners learn more about James? I think you've got some exciting things coming up. Anything you can share? Yeah, I have a. Um, I was uh, sort of teased into making a website called RedHelicopter.com. What you're going to see RedHelicopter.com morph into is just picture if, like Mister Rogers taught, money and ethics intertwined and that it's going to be a teaching platform for people who are generally excluded from certain um, knowledge sets. I make things very simple. And then there is rumor that uh, after Brene's uh, listeners really yelled at me uh, for not writing the book, um, I did do a proposal and that I'm hopeful that in a, in a month or so I'll be able to announce a, a pretty cool book deal. Wow, James, that is really, really exciting. We can't wait to read your story actually in a book. How amazing. We'll be looking out for that soon, hopefully. And for anyone who needs to connect with their community right now, you can just download the Nextdoor app or head to nextdoor.com. Thanks so much, James. Thanks, Jenny. Bye, everyone. <laughs>